Zechariah 5, 5 to 11. Now we will see the ephah with the woman inside of it in this vision. This is the seventh vision. Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what this is going forth. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is the ephah going forth. Again he said, This is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up. And this is a woman sitting inside the ephah. Then he said, This is wickedness. And he threw her down into the middle of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there were two women, and there two women were coming out with the wind in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah between earth and the heavens. And I said to the angel who was speaking with me, Where are they taking the ephah? Then he said to me, To build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. Amen. This uh, is the seventh vision, and it does have some relationship to the previous one, vision number six, verses one to four. In this way, it is a contrast. In vision six, verses one to four, the prophet saw the widespread sin of the people and their just condemnation for their sin. But in verses 5 to 11 in this vision, the sins are removed from their land and they are sent to a foreign land. The sins being removed here are represented by this ephah, the woman inside of it, and then her departure by two other women who have wings like the wings of a stork and take her far away into the land of Shinar, also called Babylon. So the wickedness of the people is removed. The wickedness in the land of Judah is removed. And that would be a consolation. That would be a comfort and encouragement to the people after hearing about judgment and the need to repent. Now forgiveness is explained. Verse 5, we have a typical opening of the next vision. Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what this is going forth. Normally, the prophet has his head down when he's thinking about what he just saw in a vision, and therefore it's necessary to get his attention, to make him look upward, to make him see what is the next vision that God has in mind for him. So he is told to lift up his eyes and to see what this is going forth. And he answers the angel in verse 6, And I said, What is it? And he said, Now, when he says, What is it? He knows what it is, but he's wanting to know more than just that. He wants to know the significance of it. So the angel answers, This is the ephah going forth. Again, he said, This is their appearance in all the land. First, this is the ephah going forth. This ephah or ephah is the Hebrew word for a bushel or a bath. It's the Hebrew word for bushel or bath, which would equal about five gallons in weight and volume. About five gallons. 
whether it's dry and usually in a bucket or in a container, a measure, it would contain grain. And it would be a typical size, about five gallons, more or less. And this would be known in the household. People in the household, in the farm, they would know about this. It would be a very common unit of measure. Um, this is what he sees, and he sees it going forth, leaving. But then he needs to know what it means. Why are you showing me a picture of this common object? Why? So the angel says, this is their appearance in all the land. This word appearance in the New American Standard Bible is a bit of a difficulty. It is the translation or one of the translations of the Hebrew word for eye, the eye, the seeing eye, the two eyes of the head. It is that word and it is with the possessive plural, their eyes. The NASB has rendered it appearance. However, because it says their eyes or their appearance, it's difficult to know what in the world that would be about unless one takes it to mean the eyes of God. But it's not talking about the eyes of God. It's talking about their something, their eyes. And because of this, in the Hebrew text, there are ancient translations translated either 200 BC or AD 100, such as the Greek Old Testament in 200 BC, 250 to 150 BC, and the Syriac of the Old Testament translated about AD 100 or 200. These translations don't have the word eyes, they have the word iniquity. Iniquity. And the word for iniquity and the word for eyes is different by one letter. And that one letter in the Hebrew language is easily miswritten and misread. Depends on the writer, the scribe, and how he writes it. But if his writing is not very distinct, then it could be confused. And there were patterns among scribes in periods of time to write the letters certain ways. So that one letter is what's making the difference between the translation, eyes or appearance, and iniquity. And it seems, since the ancient translations took it that way, whatever Hebrew text they had in front of them to translate into Greek and then into Syriac, they saw the word iniquity. They didn't see the word eye or eyes. So if we consider that fact, and I think that there is credibility to that, this is their iniquity in all the land. Then it makes sense in the context because iniquity and wickedness in verse 8 are synonymous terms. And the iniquity of the people in all the land that was made known in verse 3 in the previous vision. In the previous vision, it said in verse 3, Then he said to me, This is the curse that is going forth, that's our word again, going forth over the face of the whole land. So their curse is over all the land because of their sins throughout their land. And 
This would also make sense in verse 6. This is their iniquity in all the land. It goes together with the previous vision. And also with the subsequent uh, departure, taking of this Ephah from Judah all the way to Shinar, hundreds of miles away to the east in the land of Shinar. So let's take it that way. This is their iniquity or simply sin. This is their iniquity or sin in all the land. So if it's iniquity in the Ephah, then verse 7, And behold, a lead cover was lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the Ephah. So the lead cover which contains the contents, which controls the contents, makes sure that the contents do not drop out or spill over, right? That's what the cover would do. Well, this is a symbol of the fact that God controls the amount of iniquity. He measures the amount of iniquity, and He is the one that can open the cover, let it out. He can close it and contain it. He can do whatever He wants. So the lead cover, a symbol of God's constraint and restraint of iniquity. But also, inside of it, inside the ephah, is a woman. A woman. And then in verse 8, it says, Then he said, This is wickedness. The angel says, This is wickedness. The woman's name is wickedness. Wickedness. In the scripture, uh, the Hebrew word for wickedness, even the word for righteousness, are both feminine. So it may not be a matter of the feminine form of the noun, so much as the fact that often in the Bible, cities and nations, especially the Old Testament, cities and nations are often referred to or personified in the feminine. And so if this is representative of Judah and Judah's sins, or the sins of the foreigners who attacked Judah, um, however he means it, whether Judah's sins or the foreigners' sins, they're all sinners, that wickedness would be a, a suitable name for these sinners. Uh, we'll see elsewhere that in Scripture, the Bible refers to sin or sinners or wickedness in the feminine. All right, well, that's the same here. Um, and then it says, And he threw her down into the middle of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. This angel, he throws her into the middle of it. Now, a, a person cannot fit inside, but this is a vision. So in the vision, she is thrown into the middle of the ephah, cast, and then the lead weight is put on its opening so that she cannot escape. Another indication of God's angel, powerful angel in control of the sins of men. He doesn't let it go farther than he wants, and he has all control over the sinful actions of men. It continues in 9. 
Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there were, and there two women were coming out with the wind in their wings. He looks again at the same vision, and there's two women, two women coming out with the wind in their wings, signifying the fact that they've got the power, necessary power to propel them, to give them success, to give them the strength they need to go where they want to go. And the word for wind, air, spirit is the same as the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. So this might be a double entendre, a, a double meaning. Certainly, the whole of this vision is carried out by the Spirit of God, but in this case, it's symbolized by the wind carrying and strengthening the wings of these two women. It's hard to know who the two women are. It may be that these two women are as they are represented in the next, it says in the next clause, and they had wings like the wings of a stork. They had the wings of a stork. The stork was one of the unclean birds of the Old Covenant. This is evident from the book of Leviticus, Leviticus eleven nineteen. The stork was one of the unclean birds. So if these women have wings like the wings of a stork, then perhaps these women are also unclean birds or unclean people. So who would they be who would be able to uproot and help to undo the damage that was experienced in the land of Judah? Perhaps the Medes and the Persians, because it's the Medes and the Persians who conquer Babylon because Babylon had conquered Judah. So the Medes and the Persians, they are the ones that conquered the Babylonians. And then the king of Persia, Cyrus, he's the one that gave the Judeans freedom to return back to their homeland. And Zechariah, Haggai, Ezra, Nehemiah, these are all beneficiaries of the decree of King Cyrus, which decree was made most likely in 538 B.C. And of course, Zechariah's time is about 520 B.C., along with Haggai. It says here they had the wings, uh, like the wings of a stork. We've said that that was an unclean animal. But why the stork? Because the stork is a very swift and strong bird. It's very swift and strong going on this long journey. And actually, even in English folklore, doesn't the stork deliver, deliver babies, right? So it has the ability to, to carry heavy objects like that um, and for a great distance. This would have been hundreds of miles from the land of Judah or Canaan to southern Mesopotamia in the land of the Babylonians. Okay, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. Between earth and heaven, if they are lifting up the ephah, this would have the effect, the same effect as the one in the previous vision where there's a flying scroll, a flying scroll which has an unusual 
length and width bigger than usual. And why? So that everyone can see. And in this case, everyone sees the work of God, the power of God, at least all who believe. They see the work and power of God, releasing them of their sins, removing their sins as far as the east is from the west, a great distance away. Verse 10, And I said to the angel who was speaking with me, Where are they taking the ephah? Then he said to me, To build a temple, literally a house, and often the word house in a religious context means a house of worship or a temple. So it's rendered temple by NASB. To build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. This, uh, because she is set on a pedestal, that's why the rendering temple makes it more clear. We're talking about a religious house, a house of worship. So, this ephah, with the woman in it, is going to be delivered to the land of Shinar with a temple, and she will be stationed in their temple, the temple of pagan gods. And paganism and iniquity go together. Paganism and wickedness go together. That's where she will find a home. Find a home there, and she will have her own pedestal, uh, her own place where she is situated, and worshipped. She will be worshipped there in Shinar. Shinar is another word for, it is the oldest word for the land of Chaldea, Akkad, Babylon. These are other words to refer to either cities or the region where this is. And so, so finally, this iniquity or the torment of these iniquities is being removed from Judah. It's an assurance of their forgiveness and reconciliation with God. At least the godly remnant of the exiles or the returnees. The godly remnant has their sins separated from them. Vision of encouragement. Let's explore some of these a little bit further. In verse, verse 6, it says, This is the ephah going forth. The Hebrew word for ephah is used first by Moses in the law, and then it's used in the prophets. It's a very significant word because it was one uh, unit of measurement. For trade. And naturally, when trade is happening, corruption happens, wickedness happens because of the love of money. Correct? Keep our place here and let's turn to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 35. Leviticus 19. 35. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight, 
or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt. You shall thus observe all my statutes and all my ordinances, and do them. I am the Lord. Another is Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, 13 to 16. Deuteronomy 25, 13 to 16. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a full and just weight. You shall have a full and just measure. And the word for measure here in this context is ephah. If, if they had been consistent, they would have just rendered it a just ephah. That your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. For everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly, is an abomination to the Lord your God. That means that whoever does this is hated by God. To be an abomination is to be hated. Further, we see in the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs 11, verse 1. 11.1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. False balance, an abomination. Chapter 20 of Proverbs. Chapter 20 and verse 10. 20.10 Differing weights and differing measures... Both of them are, unabom- are abominable to the Lord. Differing weights, differing measures. By the way, the reason that they would carry differing weights and differing measures didn't have to do with uh, different um, measurements for the purpose of trade, but different measurements for the purpose of deceit in trade. Deceit in trade. It's not just the difference between one pound and two pounds. But it's giving the customer the appearance that he's buying two pounds when actually he might be buying a pound and a half or 1.75 pounds or something like that. That's what they mean in Moses and Solomon here, differing weights and differing measures. That's what they're talking about. Also, 2023, 2023, differing weights are an abomination to the Lord and a false scale is not good. And then Amos, Amos chapter 8, Amos 8, 4, Amos 8 and verse 4, 4 to 6. Hear this, you who trample the needy to do away with the humble of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may buy grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market? to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger. The word bushel is ephah. And to cheat 
with dishonest scales, so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals, and that we may sell the refuse of the market, uh, the refuse of the wheat. And Micah, Micah 6. Micah 6, 9 to 16. Micah 6, 9. The voice of the Lord will call to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear, O tribe, who has appointed its time? Is there yet a man in the wicked house along with treasures of wickedness? And a short measure, that is a short ephah, that is cursed? Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? For the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So also, I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied, and your vileness will be in your midst. You will try to remove for safekeeping, but you will not preserve anything. And what you do preserve, I will give to the sword." You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but will not anoint yourself with oil. And the grapes, but you will not drink wine. The statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab are observed, and in their devices you walk. Therefore I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for derision, and you will bear the reproach of my people. These passages are clearly indicative of the fact that God reminded them again and again that they better watch how they do trade, how they do business, how they use their money. Because that is the source, it's a common source of wickedness. But it wasn't just an Old Testament sin or Old Testament problem. It's in the New as well. 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, 6, 6 to 10. 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Also 17, 6, 17 to 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed." The, the Bible here, therefore, in Zechariah emphasizes this fact that whether it was the Judeans or the Babylonians, their, their belly was unsatisfied unless 
they extorted, stole, blackmailed, did whatever for money so that they could spend it on their pleasures. Next we saw in verses 7 and 8 that wickedness is personified as a woman. First, what is wickedness? Wickedness is the opposite of righteousness, the very opposite of righteousness. These are the words of antithesis in the Bible. Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. Let's read a few verses, beginning at verse 5. We'll read, let's read five verses, or six verses from 5 to 10. 11, 5. The righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of strong men perishes. The righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. With his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there is glad shouting." Contrast between righteous and the righteous and the wicked, or righteousness and wickedness. But also the personification of it as a woman. Well, in the book of Proverbs, chapters 1 to 9, we have both the woman of wickedness and the woman of righteousness. And these are pitted against each other so that. The naive, simple, young, new believer might understand to embrace righteousness, the woman of righteousness, and reject the woman of wickedness. That is the appeal in Proverbs chapters 1 to 9. It begins at verse 20, chapter 1, verse 20. And it's, it's uh, woven in and out of various chapters and verses from chapters 1 to 9. One twenty. This is the woman of righteousness. One twenty. Wisdom, or the woman of wisdom. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love simplicity, and scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge? Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand, and no one paid attention, and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will even laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm, and your calamity comes on like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they shall not find me. 
because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive shall kill them and the complacency of fools shall destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and shall be at ease from the dread of evil. That's the woman of wisdom or righteousness calling out to those who would listen. However, there's also the wicked woman. Chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion, and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Now, again, we'll go to a prophet. We'll go to Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, where he describes the nation as a woman. Um, In Ezekiel chapter 16, Ezekiel 16, in verses 1 to 5, God describes Jerusalem as an infant girl who was thrown out into the open field with no one to care for her. That would be akin to saying, you were in the land of Egypt, in the open field of the land of Egypt. You were being tormented. No one cared for you. No one loved you. But then God delivered her. But she had no gratitude. So Jerusalem, or the people of Judah, Israel, as a woman. Now we pick it up at verse 6, 16.6. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. Yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet, and I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands, and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver." And your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil. So you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. 
That's God's provision and care and love for the people. However, what did the people do? 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame. And you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. And you took some of your clothes, made for yourself high places of various colors, and played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Then you took embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey, with which I fed you, you would offer before them for a soothing aroma. So it happened, declares the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters, whom you had borne to me, and you sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. And besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. And that's why he punishes them. He condemns them and punishes them. This is Ezekiel before the Babylonians, or actually during the period of the Babylonian invasions. Ezekiel sees it and prophesies of it, speaking of Judah as a woman. But Judah is not the only woman in the Bible. There are many women in the Bible as nations and cities. The book of Revelation, the book of Revelation in chapters 17 and 18 describes Babylon like this, describes Babylon like a woman. And 17 verse 1, we'll start at 17, 1. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And upon her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of all, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So this woman, notorious for her sins. Well, included in her sins, we pick it up in chapter 18. Chapter 18, it says, 18, verse 4, 18, 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins and that you may not receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven 
and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which she has mixed. Mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. So what is her sin? And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. There we go. Same old problem. That is, sin exemplified in the way they deal with their trade, their money, their business, and therefore they are punished. Another thing that we said about the the vision was that these sins are separated from the people and then sent to Shinar or Babylon, right? And this signifies the fact that God wipes out our sins. He cleanses us of our sins. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 103, Psalm 103, he says in verses, let's read from verses 6 to 14. Psalm 103, 6. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. God's great compassion is illustrated in verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is the kind of forgiving, merciful God we have. This kind of forgiveness 
and wiping away our sins. Remember in the book of Zechariah chapter 3? Zechariah chapter 3. Joshua the high priest was clothed with filthy garments. 3.3. But then verse 4 says, And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. And in verse 9, Zechariah 3, 9, For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. He will remove and destroy, forgive, cleanse our iniquities. And one more is in Micah. The book of Micah, chapter 7. Micah seven, eighteen, seven, eighteen to 20. 7, 18. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob, and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. That's the promise. When God sovereignly removes our iniquities. They are removed and forgiven. As it says in 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I am writing these things in order that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Actually, and also verse 2, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. When God removes our sins in Christ, they are completely forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. So this is a word of encouragement to Zechariah and the people, the faithful. One more point to make, and that is in verse 11, related to Shinar. The land of Shinar, it first appears in the book of Genesis. Let's do a brief study of the land of Shinar. Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. Among the descendants of Cush, and Cush was the son of Ham. Genesis 10, 6 to 14, he's a descendant or son of Ham, and Ham was the son of Noah. It says this, we pick it up at verse 8. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Eric and Akkad, and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. 
The land of Shinar, it, this is where these major cities were. Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalmet. Babel is more often, we refer to it as Babylon. Babylon is a city in the land of Shinar. Other uh, major cities were Erech, Akkad, and Kalmet. Actually, the word Akkad is the word from which we get Akkadian. Akkadian because Akkadian is the language of the ancient Mesopotamians. And it comes from this place, Akkad, in the land of Shinar. And this part was in southern Mesopotamia. And speaking of that, let's go to northern Mesopotamia in verse 11. 11 and, verses 11 and 12. From that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and rehoboth Ir and Kalah and resin between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. He went first to southern Mesopotamia, Shinar or Babylon, and then went north, likely up the Euphrates River. Um, these cities are around the Euphrates River on one side or the other, into the land of Assyria. Assyria is northern Mesopotamia. That's the first time we read of Shinar or Babylon. But there's more. Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Genesis 11, 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower, whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. This is the word from which we get Babylon, Babel. This incident occurred in Shinar, and the city they were building was Babel, or Babel, Babylon. It's not only a city, but a tower. And though it just says tower here, it was likely a temple tower. It wasn't just a tower to be a watchtower, but likely in the city, probably in the center of the city, was this tower and a place of worship, probably idolatry, likely it was idolatry. And this is also in Zechariah 5.11 because they're going to, with wickedness, build a temple for her. She's going to have a temple there in the land of Shinar. And she's going to be set on a pedestal to be worshipped in the temple in Shinar. 
Um, also, by the way, in history books, Shinar of the Bible is the Sumer of history. S-U-M-E-R. The Sumerian civilization or the city of Sumer. In, in older books, it was called Shumer. S-H-U-M-E-R. It should be with an S-H, but these days people just say Sumer. S-U-M-E-R. The Sumerians. Which is one of the most ancient languages recorded. The Sumerian, Southern Mesopotamian language. Uh, that's in Genesis. Um, however, there's more to it. J- Daniel chapter 1. The book of Daniel chapter 1. Daniel 1 verse 1. 1, 1 to 2. Daniel also is a contemporary of the time when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians conquered Judah. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. All right. The Babylonian king, he worships his own gods. It does not name his god here, but likely at this time in history, their favorite god was Marduk. Marduk. So probably in the temple of Marduk, in the land of Shinar, this is where the vessels of God... They were plundered from the temple of Jerusalem, transported to Babylon, and kept there in his treasury, in the temple of his God. And when they do this, they're doing this to say, we are stronger and greater. Our God is stronger and greater than your God. We have the victory. We plundered your wealth. Our God is true. Yours is no good. Or yours is weak. However, verse 2 says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim. The Bible says, God gave Jehoiakim and Judah and the temple and the vessels of the temple to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar didn't do it, and Nebuchadnezzar's God didn't do it. God did it. He is stronger than they. And that's the same in Zechariah 5 is this is only possible because God transported all this wickedness, separated from Judah, and sent it to Babylon, sent it to Shinar, for it to dwell there, away from the people of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.